I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. It's a show where we take seriously the awe we feel when we find ourselves inspired by the world around us. In this podcast, we often reflect on wonders overlooked or forgotten about. But today we're going to investigate unseen wonder. Brace yourselves, all ye doubters and naysayers. We're about to give the fairest shake we can possibly give to believers in elves in Iceland. I'm talking about a way of believing that even today is still a real enough thing that it made its way onto Netflix in the romantic comedy Eurovision Song Contest, the story of Fire Saga. Sigrid, played by Rachel McAdams, is one half of the struggling duo Fire Saga, and she tells her partner Lars, played by Will Ferrell, that she's visited the elves to ask them for help in winning a spot in the Eurovision Song Contest. Okay, listen. Last night, I went to the Galgren Lava Field to ask the elves to help us. Hear me out. Hold on. No. Elves again. Don't do it. You know I have nothing to do with elves. Lars, shut your mouth or the elves will shut it for you! Please, elves don't exist, Sigrid. (gasps) You're killing me! Take it back! I can't take it back. You have to take it back. Look, it's not going to be elves that get us into the song contest this year. It's going to be the perfect song. Plus elves. Today on Constant Wonder, we're not going to weigh in on whether actual elves would actually meddle in an international singing contest far from their home on the land of fire and ice. But we are going to talk about how belief in elves is widespread enough there that the government's road administration actually moved a highway just to accommodate some elves. And more importantly, we're going to hear how this belief in elves could have a real impact on the protection of our planet. If you think this is just woo-woo stuff, suspend your disbelief, just for a little while, you know, to hear out our guest. In Iceland, more than half the country either believes in elves or believes that elves could exist. But you should know that when Icelanders refer to elves, they're not talking about the kinds of elves that we might know from children's books. The picture in our minds, you know, the Keebler elves or the elf on a shelf or the Christmas elves, you know, that kind of thing, that's not at all what they're talking about. The closest thing that we have in our culture to an Icelandic elf would be the elves in the Lord of the Rings, like. Galadriel in the forest, a nature spirit that is very powerful, but can also relate to people and can look like a person if it wants to. That's Nancy Marie Brown, an expert on Icelandic cultural history and author of Looking for the Hidden Folk, How Iceland's Elves Can Save the Earth. She's made a serious study of elves and of the Icelanders' regard for them. When I started looking into this question of, well, what really is an elf, I realized that these are not cute little people that you would look down to. These are actually powerful nature gods and goddesses. And that's sort of where they derived from. Nancy spent a great deal of time with an elf seer, a woman very well known in Iceland who will tell you with great candor about various elves and other supernatural creatures that she's known all her life. So many species. Dwarfs of many sizes. Elves of I don't know how many types. Green and blue. There are beings of the water, beings of the air. There are uh, what we in Iceland call trutl, like giants in the mountains. Gods of the mountains. Huge angelic beings. We're going to get to meet this elf seer too, but first let's explore Iceland a little bit itself, because this landscape is striking enough in appearance that even you or I might be persuaded to look, uh, if only with an occasional second glance, for elves in crags, rocks, stones. This is a land with very few trees, lots of stone, however, volcanic stone everywhere, and you know how volcanic formations can be, cavities, pits, crags. We're generally not talking about smooth surfaces. And far from seeing rocks as things that need to be removed in the name of progress, Icelanders are taught from an early age not to smash stones because stones are a bridge, a connection from the vivid present back to the past. 
Here's Nancy Brown again talking about why Icelanders might think about rocks very differently from the way most of us do in North America or the way Europeans do. Because Iceland is positioned directly atop the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. That's the opening seam between tectonic plates, which are gradually pushing continents, either side of the ocean, further and further apart. This is important to our backstory about rocks, as Nancy explains. Well, one thing you do have to remember is that they can see them being born. In the years that I have been visiting Iceland, there have been at least three volcanic eruptions that you could actually walk right up to, you know, with with very little danger, and watch the stone being birthed out of the center of the earth and see how it changes color as it cools and the noises that it makes, like a crinkling and a crackling of glass. Thousands and thousands of Icelanders go to watch and they bring their children to watch the earth being born. And then over years and over centuries, these lava fields change in character so that they're not, you know, just fields of black rubble. And then the mosses start moving in and they become smoother and softer until you have these just pillows of moss green, uh, almost yellow in some places. And it just changes the effect from being a forbidding place. It becomes a welcoming place. There's a, a little tussock for you to sit down on if you want to. Sheep will graze in there and you have a lot of, of changes happening right in front of you. Part of that is because Iceland is such a new country, it, it straddles the tectonic plates, so it's actually getting bigger every year as the, the magma comes to the surface. And Icelanders know that their country is growing, that it is alive, that it is changing. They can actually see this happening in real time. They think of the rocks as being the children of the volcano, and the volcano is a person of some sort in the culture. So it's um, a very different way of thinking about rocks. There are not many mammals in Iceland. The only native mammal is the Arctic fox, and I've never seen one there. Uh, but there's many, many birds, and there's many little small plants of all kinds that you tend to notice because they are you know, strikingly bright colors when everything else around you is, is moss green and the black of the lava. Not far from Reykjavik, I think on the very outskirts of town, is this lava field, Galgarhun. And Nancy, you've been there. You've been there with other people. And I don't even have the right adjective for this place other than volcanic and magical, maybe. But the word magical is so fast and loose. Take us there when you first saw the place. What did you do? It's, a, it's about a half an hour's drive out of the city, and you wouldn't notice it if you weren't looking for it. It's just like a little pocket of wilderness between the city and a suburb right on the edge of the water. You might look past it to see the water and the, and the birds and the islands offshore and then the mountains in the distance. But there's this little, as you say, magical place uh, between the road and the ocean. And when you park and get out and walk into it, you find all these you know, tiny paths between large rocks and jumbles of rocks that have been inhabited by moss and lichens and grasses and wildflowers. And then because of the way lava rock works, when it comes out of the ground, it's molten. And then it, it sort of freezes, it solidifies into strange shapes. You're always seeing faces. You're always seeing characters. You're seeing monsters. You're seeing, you know, if you look at it with the eyes of a child, you open yourself to, okay, what am I looking at? You'll start wondering if these creatures that you're imagining are actually there and if they're moving when you pass through. Now, I had the great experience of first coming to this lava field with a woman who is an elf seer, uh, Rachilda Jonsdotter. And 
This is a tradition that Icelanders have had for hundreds and hundreds of years, that there are some people who can see the other world. They can see the spirits inside the rocks and inside the plants, uh, inside the mountains. And Rockhilder is one of these, and she has always been able to see the creatures of the other world and to talk to them. Nancy met Rockhilder at a folksy Icelandic festival in Litchfield, Connecticut, where they were both featured guests. Nancy was presenting about Icelandic horses. Rockhilder was talking about the tradition of elves in Iceland, and more to the point, she was explaining what people like her, elf seers, what they do. I remember being in this old Grange building, kind of a, you know, a musty old smelling place with, uh, you know, folding chairs and a screen that was slightly tilted off sideways and it wasn't, the projector wasn't all that bright, you know. So this is a real down-home festival. So I'm, I'm watching Rockhilder try to give a PowerPoint presentation about elves and I'm thinking, this is sort of nuts. Uh, I'm half laughing with her and half laughing at her and saying, no, you really don't believe this, do you? And um, then afterwards, there was a, a party for the presenters. And I thought, yeah, I, I have to speak to this woman. And she had read some of my books and she wanted to speak to me also. And we just had this wonderful sort of meeting of minds where I, I realized that no, this was not a joke. This was not any kind of a, you know, a tourist offering, that this was actually a very deep-seated belief from her culture that there are other spirits in the world that we can't see, that most people can't see, and that she's one of the lucky ones, that she actually can see them. And I said, you know, I think I need to go out on an elf walk with you. I, I'm not sure I understand yet. But again, you know, getting to that way of looking at the world with wonder and as a child and saying, okay, open your mind. Is this possible? She obviously is not putting me on. If this was performance art, you might be able to catch her in a mistake. You can never catch her in a mistake. These are actual beings that she speaks to and she knows them very well. Um, so it's, it's like you have to get rid of all your prior assumptions. We're going to get back to Nancy's first elf walk, that tour of the lava field she felt compelled to take. But first, let me just say that we just had to reach out ourselves to Rockhilder Jonsdottir and find out how serious this elf seer is about her role and function. And if what Nancy Brown said is true, that Rockhilder is no put-on. I want you to hear some of my own conversation with this elf seer. Here, Rockhilder Jonsdotter is telling me about a particular elf-like being named Pulda, whom she says she's known all her life. And you get the sense that she really wishes we could all see what she sees. I even hear in her description, in her voice, a certain wistfulness, like she's a little hesitant to share what she sees because it's so real to her and so unbelievable to many of us. Each of us have many sets of eyes and ears. There are many dimensions. And each human and each being has many levels, many dimensions. So when I look at Pulda, I don't have to turn my head like this. She's standing right next to me now. I see her with my inner eyes, eyes from another dimension. So if you're able to see her with your inner eyes, and if she's in another dimension, does she still have an appearance? Can you describe what she looks like? Uh, she's similar in height to me. Very beautiful. Now she's smiling. Like, um, <laughs> she's always well-dressed, handmade, hand-embroidered. Does she age over time? I mean, if you met her when you were two, and uh, now you're older, a few decades have gone by. Uh, has she aged as you have aged? She has aged, you know, we were just tiny kids, but she looks maybe half my age. I don't know their secret, but it's not a cream. 
<laughs> if it were a cream, uh, we would be in business, wouldn't we? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Rockhilder started a friendship with Poulda when she was just two, but it was as a young adult that she was approached by other supernatural beings to make a special commitment. They called me out to Þingvellir. Þingvellir is a very sacred place for Icelanders, humans and, and other beings. <laughs> and I asked my husband to drive me out there. It was at 11 o'clock at night. And he said, sure, okay, why not? <laughs> I have a very patient husband. Um, so we went out there and there were so many beings there of many different species. And they just asked me, uh, in the middle of a ceremony they had for summer solstice, if I would be willing to speak on their behalf. And what do you say? I just said, yeah, sure. I was working as a healer at the time, so why not speak on behalf of elves as the ancestors or angels? Ancestors or angels. Now that's rich food for thought. Some would say it's strong drink. Mull that pairing of words over for a bit. That elves might be in the class with ancestors or angels. This is unfamiliar terrain for most of us, as it was initially for Nancy. But Nancy decided she was going to give this elf seer a chance, and she would do it right on Rockhilder's home turf in Iceland during an upcoming research trip. Her plan was realized. As the two of them met by previous agreement, they came together to enjoy a little stroll, a nature walk, an elf walk, if you will, through the very place where Rockhilder Jonsdotter had famously intervened in a construction project. How could I not start thinking about Horton the Elephant and speaking for the Who's, you know? Rockhilder had spoken out for the elves, for the preservation of their home. Might seem like a little tiny corner of planet Earth, but the spot, called Galgarhuen, is now known the world around as a place where threatened elves in modern times prevailed against a government's attempt to displace them in what you could really call a classic case of imminent domain. Nancy has already painted a picture of Galgahuen for us, a little pocket of wilderness, as she called it. The reason this lava field was very, very special was it had been declared a nature preserve, a natural area, because there's many birds that nest near there and because of the influence it has had on some of Iceland's greatest artists. And beyond these reasons, if you can just see them or just believe in them, Galgahuen was also a habitation for elves. Oh, so inconvenient for modern commuters traveling every day around the lava field to get from city to suburb. Even the president of Iceland had to make this commute. At first, it was the local environmental groups that got involved with their protests, people tenting up in the field to sleep there. None of this seemed to make any difference until Rockhilder wrote a letter to the mayor from the point of view of the elves. You are not only destroying rocks, you are destroying spirits. You, you have to negotiate with them. You have to give them a chance to find new homes. You have to help them find new homes. And there was a certain rock formation, a large rock formation, that Rockhilder and another elf seer both said is an elf church. And as she explained to me, they use the term church just as a metaphor because we can't really understand the spiritual aspect of elf life. But this was a very holy, sacred place for the elves, and it was going to be destroyed. So there was such an international you know, hue and cry over this that the road administration said, okay, we will take you know, the elf lore into account here. And where do the elves want us to put this road? So there was a discussion about, okay, where should it go and how wide does it need to be? Yes, it was right where they wanted the road to be. So I talked with the elves or the beings. There are many different types of beings that use this rock as a sacred place. So I talked with them about moving it and... They agreed, and they got some time to get everything ready, and then it was moved. And they ended up physically moving part of the elf church so that it would be offside of the road, and the road narrows a little bit when it goes past that area so that it's still protected. And everyone agreed that this was a good compromise, and the elves allowed the 
the road building to go through. It would be tempting here to think that Rockhilder had gone to the elves to alert them of their peril. But according to Rockhilder, that simply wasn't the case. She told me... It was originally the, the beings that called me out there to, to help do this. Remember her earlier promise to the creatures, the spirits of nature? Rockhilder makes good on that. She's been doing this again and again for many years now. Uh, that dispute at Galgahruen, that was just the most famous, the most consequential negotiation she's been involved in. That hit the papers big time. Uh, but she does stay busy as a go-between, a sort of consultant, if you will. Her clientele of elves, of hidden folk, they're invisible to me. But a lot of people value what she has to offer. I'm very often called into uh, people's gardens or when they start building a house and machinery breaks down or... Yeah, they want to put in a hot tub or something. (laughs) And something happens. And then they say, "Mm, this could be an elf. I better talk to someone that can talk with the elves. There's many stories in Iceland about if you don't take into consideration the elves that are living there, that your, your bulldozers break down, that there are floods, that there are, you know, all kinds of accidents, the electricity goes out. All kinds of weird things happen. Well, something weird happened to you when you were right there with her. You've got to tell us what uh, what went down there. Okay, there was this was the thing that 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 finally convinced me that okay, I I don't really understand everything that's going on around here, because as we were leaving the lava field, suddenly this uh, woman drove up in a car and she jumped out and started yelling at us in Icelandic. So I didn't really know exactly what she was saying. But it was something about our dog was harassing the birds that were nesting on the uh, edge of the lava field. And we kept saying, but we don't have a dog. And we didn't see a dog when we were out there. This one was just beside herself. She was so upset. And so Rock Hilder says, do you know who I am? I'm the person who preserved this lava field. And no, that didn't get through to her either. So we just decided, okay, we're going to have to leave. So we got in the car and we started to drive away. And this woman was so upset that she jumped in her car and she tried to cut us off. And just before her car would have hit us, I mean, would have hit me in the passenger side, it suddenly jumped up in the air and steam started coming out of the front of it. And Rockhilder and I looked at each other like, what just happened? And we stopped the car. We were all still in the parking lot. And we got out. And there was a stone about the size of a basketball that was now underneath this woman's car between the front wheels and the back wheels. And there was no possible way she was going to drive away. There was, you're going to have to get a record to lift this car off the stone. And obviously something was damaged because there was all kinds of steam coming out. We have no idea where that stone came from. Rockhilder and I, we've talked about it afterwards. Neither of us can remember there being a big stone in the parking lot. And suddenly it was there. And so Rock Hilda takes the woman's arm and says, let me drive you home. We can't really do anything here. Let me take you home. So we took her home. She lived just on the other side of the lava field. And uh, we were just kind of went back to the, the city, sort of shaking her head saying, okay, what just happened? And Rock Hilda smiles and she says, now do you believe in elves? There's really no other explanation, you know. We just do not know what moved that rock there or how did it happen to get there that no one saw it. Elves, if you haven't heard, have a reputation for being a little bit on the mischievous side. Many Icelanders accept that elves can become meddlesome during, oh, say, maybe a construction project. But according to Rockhilder, these spirits or forces or or beings or ancestors or angels or, or elves... They're most concerned about the land and preserving their own connection to it, but also our connection to it. And she offers a view of elf motives that rise far above mere meddling. Uh, She talks about truly beneficent motives. Peace, uh, reconciliation. Maybe the key word is friendship between all species, between a human and a lava rock or moss and birds and elves and giants. 
the beings of nature, they today want to come out again, like they did in the old days when we all used to work together. They want to work together again, and they want to remind us humans that we are nature beings, just like them. We cannot live without nature. Now, here on the Constant Wonder podcast, as you may have already experienced, we talk a lot about this amazing world, and we hope that we often surprise you with this or that account of some phenomenal phenomenon. But I can almost hear you saying, negotiating with elves, that's a bridge too far. Nancy Marie Brown understands that kind of skepticism, if you have it. We're going to ask her more about it in just a moment. I'm Marcus Smith, and in this episode of Constant Wonder, we're exploring... Oh, we've said it's the Icelandic belief in elves, but that's not thorough enough. Belief in elves. Too narrow. It's actually far more complicated than that. I could even say more wonderful than that. All depends on your readiness to believe. Elves are not the only category of spiritual beings that I've never seen or spoken to, but Rock Hilder Jon's daughter has. And as long as I'm trying to clarify a few categories... Remember when Rock Hilder told us about her lifelong friend Pulda? I referred to Pulda as an elf-like being. Pulda is not really an elf. She's what Icelanders would call one of the huldafolk, or hidden folk. So what else is Rock Hilder seeing that I'm not seeing? She talks to some creatures that even surprise her. And they're usually entwined with particular places. For example, her own farm. There's a rewilding approach underway there in the pastures and fields. We see the tiny little flower fairies that come with these plants. And I see where the birch trees are just starting to grow. They have uh, bigger tree beings with them. So it's very curious, I have to say, to what things turn around. <laughs> have you ever been surprised by stumbling into a species you hadn't met yet before? When I first saw a dragon or a unicorn, I thought they were just myth. <laughs> um, but they're not, apparently. What, what is your reaction upon seeing a dragon for the first time? Um, because I had learned through stories that dragons were dangerous, I was like, oops, what did I do now? <laughs> but we became friends instantly, and now I meet him very often, and sometimes it takes me flying some places. Things turn around, Rock Hilder says. She credits these non-human agents with enacting various changes, making things better, and she wants to serve in league with these well-meaning beings. I went to New York to do a workshop, and I don't know how many beings were with me. We filled the plane, and thank goodness I didn't have to pay their ticket. The flight tickets. <laughs> um, they travel they light, also, I trust. They travel light, yes. <laughs> um, so we went to Central Park in the middle of this big city. And there were so many beings there. And we had a work to do there with the beings of the place and the beings from Iceland. And um, What was that work you had to do? I, I don't know if I should say it out loud. But there was... Sometimes we human close places like the sacred places. We close them, and it's it's not good. It sounds like you were trying to open a place. We opened the place up again. It was healthier when you left. That was my feeling, yes. And the beings that we met that it was, were locked in the rocks, that they could come out again. And um, yeah, we all felt healthier afterwards. We're going to expand on this theme of working together with the elves to make the earth a healthier place in just a little bit. After all, Nancy Marie Brown's book, Looking for the Hidden Folk, it is subtitled How Iceland's Elves Can Save the Earth. But I'm well aware that you, my dear listener, you may have trouble getting past the fact that there's this whole world view, I'm talking outside of Lord of the Rings, that operates on a belief in elves. And my intellectual integrity would have been sullied had I not put this whole matter before Nancy, who has been studying painstakingly whatever it is that's going on here. 
So you're with Rockhilder, who is an elf seer, who has, uh, putatively, she has this capacity to sense the presence of these otherworldly beings. You are with her uh, from across the Atlantic Ocean, and uh, you're kind of being invited into the whole matrix of belief. How resistant are you to that? Um, it took me a couple of years, I think, to accept that this was what was happening. Her question, now do you believe in elves, was one that I couldn't actually answer at that point. And I decided, you know, this is something I have to look into. I've read a lot of Icelandic mythology, you know, Norse mythology and the Icelandic sagas. But this time I decided to look into the folklore, the stories about the elves. How do Icelanders talk about elves? And what do they mean when they say they believe in elves? What does that word believe mean? And what do they mean by elf? This was a line of scholarly investigation that led Nancy, if you can believe this, to start thinking about Einstein. Einstein conceived a theoretical proof for the existence of atoms. Now, mind you, not since Democritus, some 2,500 years before that, not in all that time had anybody been able to confirm the existence of atoms because they can't or couldn't be seen. You know, like elves can't be seen, unless you can see what I don't. Anyway, Nancy thought it could be helpful to compare the competing scientific belief systems, if you will, of Newton and Einstein. It gets a little thick here, but Newton claimed that gravity influences motion, but then Einstein went further, arguing that gravity could also change time and space. These are deep waters for a mind like mine to swim in. They can't both be correct because they contradict each other. And then I was reminded that, yes, and also Einstein's theory predicts time travel. Wacky. And then I start thinking, um, okay, so where does Einstein's theory take us next? And that got me into relativity, quantum mechanics, and you know, you start seeing this this vision that scientists have created of what is the universe like, and it is unbelievable, you know, in, in many ways. You go say, okay, I can't do the math. I have to trust them that the math is right. But even if I could do the math, can I believe that there are multiple universes existing at the same time and that our universe would not be the way it is without these multiple universes? And of course, having just read a whole lot of Icelandic folklore about elves, I realized that that's what the folklore is saying too, that there are these multiple universes. There's the elf universe and the human universe. And some people can see through that barricade or that barrier, and some people can move through that barrier from one universe to another. And this has been in Norse mythology for a thousand years. This is the the pagan religion of Iceland when the first settlers came. They believed this, that they could go into the rocks when they died or that they could visit the elves in the rocks. And I'm thinking, okay, what is really the difference between the scientific viewpoint and the folkloric viewpoint. There's there's math on one hand and there's tradition on the other, um, but they're really saying about the same thing, which is kind of... Now, now, given everything that you've just said, if we were to take different types of belief systems or systems of thought, uh, the mathematicians, the Einsteins, and the uh, the Icelanders, or or somebody who believes in maybe uh, out-of-body experiences or angels or what have you, Some people would take all of this and say, okay, today on Constant Wonder, we're having a a discussion about the paranormal. Okay, I want to refute that. Because what you do in in your book is you take all of that material of, of potential belief and then you put it on a grid where there is a place. There's a map. There's a place called Galgahroin. There's a place called Helgefell that you've been to. These are rocks. They're in Iceland, but they're specific places with specific stories. And then you you tie that into a really interesting bundle where in the end, I come away with the idea that these places you're talking about are, are mappable and they're special and they might be holy. 
that's kind of something I can almost get on board with because I like the idea, for example, of, of a holy mountain or a temple. I, I like that idea. I'm drawn to that. You've called them thin places. Would you explain what a thin place is? Yeah. Well, you mentioned the name Helgefell, and that actually translates to holy mountain. And I visited that place every time, almost every time I've been to Iceland over the last 35 years. And it's a place that when I'm sitting on this hill, and it's it's really not very big, I feel like I can access uh, the other world, the past. I, you know, it makes me dream of what I'd like to do in the future. You know, it's a, it's a very special place where, you know, when they say a thin place, that's where you can see through to the other side. So whether that other side is heaven, whether that other side is uh, the elf world or one of the other universes that mathematics predicts, it just sort of uh, allows you to expand your thinking, expand the universe that you live in. The story about Helgefell is that when the first settlers came there, they came from Norway, they were pagan, they believed in the god Thor, and so they threw the carving of Thor off of the boat and said that we will settle wherever Thor comes to shore. And he came to shore close to this mountain. So they named the peninsula Thor's Ness, and they named the mountain the Holy Mountain, and they believed that Thor had a feasting hall inside this mountain, and that they would go there when they died. So this was, their Valhalla was inside this hill. And one of the stories in the saga is that one of the chieftains who lived on the farm went out fishing. He had a very large, not only family, but other people that he was responsible for on the farm of Helgefell, and they had to have a lot of fish. And so he's out fishing in very bad weather, and the boat sinks. And so he and all of his workers end up going into the hill at Helgefell, and the shepherd who was left behind sees the whole north side of the hill open up like doors and he sees people feasting inside and great fires and hears the drinking songs and things like that. And so he knows that the chieftain has drowned and has gone into the hill. And so when I'm at Helgefell and I'm looking at the north side, I see the doors open, you know, and I see the people inside in my imagination. But also I, I sort of feel that story every time I'm there, that there are people who live here who have lived here a thousand years ago. And I know their names, I know their story, I know their association with this hill. And you know, in some ways, what I was trying to do with uh, looking for the hidden folk is to talk about the power of stories. Because you know, we all tell stories, and we always have told stories, but we don't always take responsibility for the effects of our storytelling. And stories shape how you see the world. You know, they are how you interact with rocks and hills and mountains and flowers and things. It's because of the stories that you know about them. The stories make the place worth protecting or it makes it just a resource for you to use and to use up because, you know, it's not important. Iceland is very unusual that way because when the first settlers came, there were no indigenous people. The country itself was settled in the late 800s, and many of those stories were written down soon after the settlement and have been preserved. So the people who have lived there on Iceland from the beginning know the stories of the first settlers. They know the stories of the hills. They remember them for a thousand years. So they have this unbroken tradition of certain stories associated with certain places, certain people. And often what the Icelanders are telling is a story of non-humans. So the people who go into the hills sometimes are human and sometimes they're elves. They come out of the hill. Um, and because Iceland was very poor through most of its history, they, they didn't build a lot of artworks. So you don't have any monument at the hill. It's just the hill itself that is holy, that is special. Can I use the word sanctity? 
You can in, in many of these places. Not all the stories make a place sacred or holy, but many of them do. So, yeah, they, they, it, it makes it special, uh, not necessarily holy. Special enough that you don't want to take a bulldozer to it. Oh, you don't want to take a bulldozer, no, because it would be very, very dangerous to do that. Yes, yes. So there's there's some places you don't want to be because uh, the spirits of the place are telling you, no, this is not a human place. This is not a place for you. And I've, I've met those in Iceland too. There's something more here that you are offering us than just a utilitarian metaphor that that can um, maybe motivate people to be better stewards of the earth. And I want people to be great stewards of the earth. But I, I think that the, the whole question of belief is of paramount importance here because I don't want just a, a clever trick uh, because if, if that, that can become transparent where somebody could say, oh, they're just, you know, that's, that's a, a cute story that will get me to do the right thing for the planet. Does that make sense? Well, I think some people actually need the cute stories before they're going to do the right thing. The basic question is, how do we interact with nature and how do we believe the things that we believe and how do the stories we tell shape how we act and how we decide to preserve or destroy a place, how we decide to believe or not believe in something, and what are the repercussions of those beliefs. And I think that's what Rockhilder Jonstotter was getting at when she said that nature beings want us to live in peace, not just with the elves, but with the earth. Those first demonstrators at Galgarun feared harm to the environment there, not harm to elves. They wanted to protect a nature preserve for birds, mosses, wildflowers. Maybe elves, long before that, had put up their church there for the very same reason. I can't say. But Nancy Brown is clearly trying to tap into some connection there. It's not a question that has a yes or a no answer. I think you can believe in elves in a certain time and a certain place, and then when you leave that time and place, you'll start questioning your sanity. And then when you go back to Iceland, you start thinking, no, actually, I do believe in elves again. And then when you come home and you try to write about it, you say, what exactly am I believing in? Um, you know, am I believing in that there's actual people living in this rock? Or am I believing that there's some you know, spiritual power that I'm feeling when I'm, I'm sitting there? Or am I, am I accessing another plane of the universe? Is this more like meditation? Uh, what do I mean when I say there's an elf in that rock? And I think the answer is different for every person. For the Icelanders, they define that feeling of spirituality and power and beauty as being an elf. Uh, we might just say it's holiness. We might say it's mother nature. We might call it God. There's other ways in which we can describe that feeling. But for the Icelanders, for you know a thousand years, it has been an elf. Are you willing to say that that perception that might be subjective, that people are having, that they are coming up against an encounter with something real? Oh, absolutely. It's absolutely real. Whether you want to call it an elf or a god, it's absolutely real. So I do believe that there is a spirit there. I'm a person who never wants to be deceived. And yet, over my 60 years of living, I have learned a pretty valuable lesson. It goes like this. There are rational reasons for not outright dismissing reports of things beyond one's personal experience. In fact, one of the very best questions you could ever ask yourself, this is a matter of intellectual integrity, it's this. What are other people seeing that I'm not seeing? I'm not going to tell you what to believe. I'm just reminding Einstein would never have become the Einstein that we all know and admire had he not thought, at least a little bit, outside the box. And that's why Nancy, quite fairly, was able to put him together in a book with elves. 
Many thanks to Nancy Marie Brown, author of Looking for the Hidden Folk, How Iceland's Elves Can Save the Earth. And of course, thanks to elf seer Rockhilder Jonsdotter for joining with us. Just as we were producing this episode about the hidden folk of Iceland, this was a sheer coincidence, a lovely professional storyteller came to town, to the studios here, to be a guest of The Appleseed. The Appleseed, a storytelling podcast from BYU Radio. And I, too, got a chance to sit down with Mara Menzies and visit with her. She is of Kenyan and Scottish descent. She lives much of the time in Kenya and recently went north in Kenya to see the Turkana people. She and I talked about the village elders there who are called rainmakers. Now, I've already asked you this hour to suspend your disbelief. Just how hard do you think you're going to flinch when I tell you that what these rainmakers give as a weather forecast often lines up with the forecasts given by modern scientific meteorologists. Mara Menzies doesn't flinch to think about this. She's with us next here on Constant Wonder. Have you met an actual rainmaker, as they're called? I have. I have met several rainmakers, actually. Um, So I'm living in Kenya, and in Kenya, the frequency of drought has been increasing since the 1980s. And so I was involved in a project where I had to go to the very isolated, very remote part. And it's where Uganda, South Sudan, Kenya, Ethiopia, where they converge. So this, the very northwest of Kenya. And it's a place that not that many people go to because conditions there are very, very difficult. I have to ask you what it looks like. The land Is it dry? Is it forested? Is there water, for instance? There is no water. However, as we were driving through, there are huge riverbeds. So during the seasons, because we have two seasons, we have the rainy season and then we have the dry season. So in the rainy season, it rains and it rains a lot. It's very hard. It's very fast. We have the flash floods. The riverbeds are, are huge, you know, very, very wide. It's extremely difficult for vehicles to pass through because it's very muddy. Um, but it's also very sandy and so once the rains uh, have passed and once it sinks into the sand, then the rains are gone. It's not very forested at all. It's quite dry. It's quite barren. There's the Turkana Desert, um, sort of over to the to the east of where we were. But even where we were, where the trees were, they were very sparse. There were signs, however, of ancient forest because there were these rocks. And as I looked closer, there were fossilized tree trunks. The entire landscape, it sparkles because there's quartz in the ground. So it's incredibly beautiful um, in a very planet Mars-like way, I suppose, as in it's, uh, there's, it's, it's just very huge rocks. And, and even the people who live there, they live quite isolated from each other, tiny villages. And every now and again, you might see camels through the trees or goats and then normally one child who's looking after the herd of goats. So um, it's a very different experience to where I live at the Kenyan coast, which is right by the Indian Ocean with coconut trees and very tall trees, whereas there, all the trees are quite small, quite thin and quite sparse. The rainmakers, from what I've been able to learn about them, there is an aspect of this that is quite secretive. They guard it as sort of as an esoteric knowledge kind of a thing. Were you able in your travels up there to even access what they do? Or who did you talk to to find out about you? I'm, I'm guessing you weren't able to watch them doing their work. I was able to watch them doing their work. They let you. They let us, yes. So basically, how the project came about is that it was the Meteorological Society of Kenya, and they were interested in whether there was any science in the indigenous traditional knowledge of the rainmakers. And so the Turkana, they have their own system of predicting rain. And what I found when I went up there, what was really interesting is that the government department, they give equal weight to the science of rain prediction as they do to the indigenous traditional knowledge of the rainmakers, because oftentimes they correlate, you know, whatever they say is actually likely what happens. And they have different ways of predicting the rain. So certainly they're looking at clouds and and nature also gives its indications. They know that when the flowers on this particular branch begin to appear, then maybe the rains are a couple of weeks away. So nature shows people how to do things. But the problem is that the patterns have become a little bit confused. And so therefore, it's becoming harder for them to predict the rain. But one of the things that they do 
also is that they, it, it's funnily enough, it's called the mara. The mara is the intestines of a goat. And so they slaughter this goat. And the way they do it, even the slaughtering of the goat, there's a ritual involved there. So um, we filmed it and it's always the elders and it's always men. And one elder had a little knife and went to this goat that was being held by another individual and then just knew right where to place the knife right in the heart. And it was literally half a second and the piercing was done. And then the goat it tottered from side to side and then 30 seconds later it was it was done. Um, and then they began to carve it up and they removed the intestines and then they placed the intestines on top of the goat. But then what I found just really fascinating was how then they were looking at these intestines and then making these predictions based on the blood vessels that they saw here and and how the intestines, how the the round bits, <laughs> you know, the different I'll shapes. I'll trust you on that, sure. <laughs> <laughs> the different shapes that were created for the intestines, you know, this indicated a river. Um, and it's not just the rain also. It informs them of diseases that the animals might have. Great ceremony accompanies all of this. It begins with dancing by women and a chorus of men. They greet the elders coming from several local villages. Once the goat is slaughtered, the elders study the contours of the entrails, the intestines, as Mara has said, to learn when the rain will fall and where. And according to one Kenyan newspaper, some of these elders can even predict where fighting is going to occur and where flocks should be moved. The people who work in the meteorological department, they are also Turkana. So I began to think that maybe if you've grown up with this culture, it's very easy to accept it and appreciate it as it's perfectly normal and it's okay. But then we moved to West Pokot, which is just south of Turkana. And the meteorological department, the man in charge there, his name is Wilson, and he is not from the region. He's Nandi, so a very different ethnic group. The way they predict rain, he was telling us it's like a long time ago, and they used to read beer. When they brewed up the beer, the hops, whatever was left in the bottom of the calabash, that's what they would use. But he said that's something that's gone. But... Um, when he first arrived in the area, he was quite skeptical of this reading of the intestines. But he'd been there for nine years. And over the course of nine years, he had also begun to believe that there was maybe something in it. Because every time they said there's going to be rain at the end of the month or at the beginning of this month, and it will be uh, short rain or it will be longer rains, it actually really coincided with his predictions using the tools. And even the elders, uh, they referred to science as it's the glass box is what they called it. So they understand that there's just another way of predicting rain. They've got their way, and then these other people have got the glass box. Not sure what Einstein had for a glass box, or what he put in it. I doubt he ever visited Kenya. Doubt he ever hobnobbed with elves. That would have ruined his career, I think. In today's episode, if nothing else, I hope you have been persuaded, at least to consider, with humility and respect, that quite often, more often than we want to admit, other people see things that we do not and some of those things just might be wondrous. Thanks to storyteller Mara Menzies. Be sure to watch for her in an upcoming episode of The Appleseed from BYU Radio. Our producer for this hour was Tenery Taylor, with help from Lily Jensen and Paige Crumperman-Darrington. Sound design provided by Christian Mockatel and Mitchell Towsley. Constant Wonder is a production of BYU Radio.